0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and before we begin, just to request that those of you who tune in every week, um, we've grown our audience and thank you to all of you for joining me in this journey. Um, And as we move forward with episode 101 and onwards, I just have a request of you. If you haven't subscribed, do subscribe, leave a review for the podcast. And most importantly, if you like the content, just share it with one other person um, to get, get the word out there. Um, Today's conversation is a bit different in the sense that I'm going to be shifting out of South Asia and out of political economy um, into the topic of today, which is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There's been a lot of noise, um, a lot of conversations around, and a lot of misinformation around this conflict. And so I figured to help me better understand what's going on and hopefully help you understand a bit more about what's going on. Uh, We'll focus on the Russia-Ukraine war and an invasion in in Europe, uh, which at least I myself uh, had not imagined would occur at least in my lifetime, but here we are. Um, Joining me today is uh, Dr. Margarita Konaev. Um, She's a research fellow at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology. She focuses on military applications of AI and Russian military innovation Um, She's part of the Fletcher Mafia, which is where I went to school, and she got her PhD uh, from there as well. Or she was also a postdoctoral fellow at the Fletcher School. Um, And she's an expert in this space in the sense that her her writing has been published both in academic journals as well as other regular media, focusing on really Russian innovation, Russia's way of war, um, and urban warfare as well, which is where Ukraine is headed at this point in time. Um, So, Dr. Rita, thank you for taking out the time and welcome to Pakistanomy.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I will admit this is a different audience from the one that I've been conversating with, but I think this is even better because you get in your own bubble and you start making assumptions about the world, which prove to be fundamentally incorrect. And I think we're all learning that to question our assumptions these days.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, it's important to get your view into sort of the South Asian audience that's the focus of this podcast, primarily for two reasons. One, there is a lot of misinformation and because of the language barrier, Pakistanis, Indians, other South Asians don't really speak Russian or Ukrainian. There is a difficulty in understanding the conversation, much like a Westerner would have if they didn't speak or read Urdu or Hindi, for that matter. The second issue is that there is this latent anti-Americanism in Pakistan, also in India, anti-Westernism because of the colonial experience of the region, which means that you see hashtags like I stand with Putin trending in Pakistan, in India, and other parts of the region. Um, and part of that is bots. Part of that is information operations. But there is this view among people I know, for example, um, that are like, hey, this conflict is because the United States and NATO was expanding and Putin had to do something because he needs buffer space and every country needs buffer space. Tell us a bit about what this is all about, the historical underpinnings, what's going on, and why are we here at this moment in time where Putin has decided to invade Ukraine?
1: Sure, so starting with the major caveat that I'm not going to get into the significant and robust history of Europe, Russia and Europe, uh, the Ukrainian independence path, but because uh, we only have about 40-45 minutes and we want to touch on other topics and it's all very you know complicated and interconnected. but let's start from the very simple fact that Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union and in 1991 after the, as the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine became independent. So Ukraine has been an independent state. And in the last couple of years, it has been an independent democratic state for over 30 years now. Um, When we're trying to understand the current conflict, again, it like many conflicts of our lifetimes has deeper historical underpinnings, but to keep it as narrow as possible for our discussion today, 2014 was a very important year in understanding what is happening today. In 2014, Ukraine experienced what is called uh, the Revolution of Dignity, which was a popular upheaval against the government. Which decided, uh, which what, what you know, what catalyzed that upheaval was um, a decision by the government uh, not to. Enter an agreement, a trade agreement with the European Union, and instead revert back to its relationship with Russia. So the government was also quite corrupt and inept, and uh, not in line uh, with where you know Europe was headed, where uh, the Ukrainian people wanted to go. And that decision was really uh, you know kind of lit up lit a fire under a lot of young Ukrainians who had a very real European perspective and wanted to, you know, have a closer relationships with the West and more opportunities um, in the West. And they, uh, you know, mobilized peacefully and were met with suppression Uh, that, Time, let's say, experience lasted for uh, several uh, weeks and then unfolding in two months. It was a stand up. And then there was uh, the repression from the government led to, you know, some fatalities and deaths. And uh, but eventually that government, that pro-Russian government was ousted. And uh, in turn, um, a democratically elected government eventually came to power in Ukraine, really making this important transition that we know from history and from a lot of South Asian experiences is, is never really without pain. Uh, but this, this was a hopeful positive example of, you know, the possibility of a, of a young democracy being able to move forward. At that same time, Uh, counter-protests were occurring in the south part of Ukraine that were voicing a more pro-Russian stance. Ukraine as a country is ethnically intermixed. You have people who are of Russian descent. You have people who are of Ukrainian descent. Many speak both Ukrainian and Russian and have lived together for generations. But, you know, political opinions differ and diverge. So in the South, you saw a much pro Russian, let's say, tune. And uh, Russia took an opportunity, saw an opportunity at the time to intervene and uh, take, over, uh, take over a region called Crimea. Crimea, which is, which I'm sure many of the listeners and you have heard of in 2014 about the annexation of Crimea. Crimea is a strategic uh, region uh, in the south of the country that is close to the Black Sea, where a lot of the trade comes in and a lot of t- tourism um, is located. So they that annexation outside of you know, the experience of the protests uh, and some of the clashes there was still relatively peaceful. I mean, we'll take the fact that it was against international law and was very much condemned by the rest of the world. You saw a UN resolution saying that this is illegal, that this is a part of a sovereign country that suddenly decided to declare itself independent and then to hold uh, an illegal referendum Voting into an affiliation with Russia, which led then to Russia annexing it. None of that was really appropriate or proper or legal, but at least it wasn't incredibly violent. Where you did see a revert, or the you know the onset of real armed conflict was in eastern part of the country in areas that I'm sure, again, our listeners are familiar with called Donetsk and Luhansk, which are two areas in the east that had pro-Russian sentiments and increasingly manufactured and externally supported separatist movement. So what started as a local kind of not really even upheaval, but local protests of people not agreeing with this new direction of the country towards the West, uh, turn very quickly devolved into a Russian backed insurgency and uh, a war between those Russian backed separatists and the Ukrainian military. So that war has been, you know, it escalated. It, um, some, some of the worst ha- fighting happened in 2014. And overall, I believe it has led to something close to f- over 14,000 casualties uh, since then. And um, over a million, maybe a million and a half even, of people internally displaced. So it was, it was a significant military um, conflict. Um, Since then, the status of that separatist region, because that Donetsk and Luhansk were never annexed uh, in the same way that Crimea was, Uh, it kind of remained in flux, it wasn't really considered to be part of Ukraine anymore because the Ukrainian government didn't really have any real control there anymore, but at the same time, Russia was not interested in annexing it. So it was a bit in flux. It was part of a broader negotiation process then to determine its future and to determine the continued relations between Russia and Ukraine, but it was never really resolved. Um, pass forward to kind of where we are now. And we are asking ourselves what happened in the past three weeks? How is it possible that we are moved from something that was protest, something that was more of a hybrid conflict, some like a low level armed confrontation to a full scale, conventional, full on war in the heart of Europe. And the answer to that is not easy because it doesn't, that answer to that doesn't start in 2014. It doesn't really even start in 1999. Uh, in 1991, there's, there are a lot of factors there, but the primary explanations that, let's say, are coming out of Kremlin allude to um, the insecurities that are felt by the ex- expansion of NATO, uh, seeing that as a threat to um Russian independence and Russian power, Russian ability to kind of have a say on the continent. It also stems from this idea that um, in the 90s, Russia was promised that NATO would not expand to include countries in Eastern and Central Europe and in the Baltic states, kind of around where Russia, you know, considers its influence there, its sphere of influence. Um, We can talk about how that narrative is not necessarily accurate, and a lot of it is uh, manufactured for the external audience, but Ukraine is not part of NATO. So we can't say that this invasion happened because Ukraine joined NATO and Russia was unsatisfied with it or was afraid that this is going to lead to you know, threats to security. Ukraine is not part of NATO. Ukraine was never invited to join NATO because of a range of reasons. So that, that is part of the conversation. Another, another reason that they're kind of putting forth is that um, Russia was tr- really concerned about the state of human rights in Eastern Ukraine. And, um fear that the Ukrainian presence or people or authorities there were conducting, uh, you know, were enforcing real limitations on the ethnically Russian people, even to a point where they were, you know, being subjected to genocide. That is also a fabrication, because while, you know, there there is violence, there was violence and some conflict in that area, um, there was no evidence of any sort of massacres or um, you know let alone the genocide under being taking place against um ethnically russian population there another reason is the kind of related to that is the idea that you know ukraine is controlled the ukrainian government is controlled by this neo-nazi set of actors who are you know, on their way to attack and destroy Russia in the same way that the, the previous Nazis have attempted. Um, I think out of all the kind of surreal and somewhat at times ridiculous claims, that one really takes the cake because the president of Ukraine is Jewish. So that's not generally a contingent that uh, supports the Nazis. Uh, they had a big war about it, uh, it, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, there are uh, other factors, the fact that, you know, Ukrainian military and Ukraine in general have been receiving a decent amount of military assistance and military support from the United States and have been really demonstrating improvement and growing in strength since 2014, and Russia was beginning to feel that if they don't act now, by the time that they act, it would be too late. So that might extend a little bit of the timing. But in many ways, there are a lot of other reasons that are tied to the nature of the regime, Putin's ambitions, Putin's internal domestic considerations, and factors that we might never even be able to ascertain from the outside. So, but these are kind of the major big picture issues at play right now.
0: One of the things that that struck out to me um, in the last few weeks or so is sort of this idea through Russian sources, Russian media, Russia experts who sort of have written about Putin, followed his trajectory, is this idea that he sees himself as one of the great emperors of the Russian Empire and wants to recreate that empire as it stood, that the dissolution of the USSR is a personally deeply humiliating thing for him, and that he wants to leave behind a legacy that perhaps puts his place um, with the likes of the old emperors of the Russian Empire itself. Um, How do you see that sort of narrative in terms of the motivating factor for Putin itself? Because as an outsider, to me, that makes a lot of sense because history is full, filled with these characters um, who sort of see themselves as, you know, major characters who will redefine and recreate history or rekindle the old way of life as they see as a great old era, right? And it, it's in many ways, the um, even on sort of the agenda and ideology of radical Islamist terrorists. That's one of the things that they want to recreate is the old caliphate, for example, right? It, it's there. Um, we see that with radicals in India as well, um, in terms of the Hindu Rashtra. Um, how much of a role has that played in your view in terms of Putin wanting to do something that perhaps gets him, a, a, a you know, that legacy and secures that legacy for him?
1: Sure. So... I know, I go back and forth because I'm not one of those people who is in the habit of like organizing my day around understanding what is in Putin's mind. These are are very, and there's a whole industry that's dedicated to understanding how a leader, an individual leader is thinking. And obviously Putin has not absolute control over the Russian regime, but over the last 20 years, he has absolutely accumulated a massive amount of influence um, across the Russian government, and he he decides what what he decides goes in many ways. So it's not that he doesn't he's not important. He is obviously critical and essential to understanding what's happening. But I don't know if it is his mind that decides these actions. He obviously has grand ambitions and grand goals. There's no argument there. And he obviously considers the fall and the breakup of the Soviet Union to be a catastrophe. But I, I, I will push back a little bit on that to say that in many ways, the 90s were a catastrophic period of time for Russia the collapse of the economy, the spread of like criminality, the loss of any sort of like purpose or safety or security or uh, national sentiments was devastating, both on a real societal level and a national level of historic proportions. Like that time that we think of, you know, when from the West and you're looking back at it, it's like they had a moment of democracy. They had an opportunity to transition, you know, authoritarianism was, authoritarianism was over. Like perhaps those are all correct, but when people from day to day don't feel safe because there are, you know, there's just violence in the streets, the criminal violence, the gangsters, uh, gangsterism, like they, Th- that was a me- an immediate threat. The prices, because of inflation, the collapse of the economy was were astronomical. So people who had a relatively never like a rich life or a great free life by any means, but at least knew what to, to some extent what tomorrow was going to look like, were suddenly pushed into the space where there were no guarantees about anything. And there was no real understanding of why what happened happened. And all of this pro- promise of, you know, freedom of expression, dem- democracy, self-determination, that's great in theory, but the day-to-day was horrific. And I think that moment in time, in those years were really defining for him. And I think he, as a leader, has lived and led to not fall back to those years of insecurity and lack of knowledge of what comes next or these like basic basic needs. The irony is that in his ambitions and in his decisions, he is bringing on Russia now the type of an economic disaster and a human capital disaster that is probably going to look a lot like what we saw in the 90s. But I, I mean, I don't disagree with you in terms of like the historical precedence of over ambitious, maglomaniac leaders who think that they're building an empire only to eventually ruin it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it, it's been interesting in terms of that itself, right? That the more you tend to Want to hold power securely, the more it tends to slip away. It's almost like gripping sand, right? It just goes through your fingertips or the, the, in the gaps on your fingers, um, and that's what, in my view, at least, is happening with him in, in, since the war began. Speaking of the war itself, there's been a lot of misinformation. You mentioned the whole idea that you know neo Nazis are ruling Kiev, and and that's what the you know what they've been pushing on the Russian side. Um, I've read about you know, the Ukrainians preparing for chemical weapons attacks and there being these labs um, and things like that. Um, so I'm confused. I'm sure a lot of listeners are confused. So help us understand where is what is the state of the war at this point in time? Of course, there's a lot of open source intelligence in terms of leaky trucks and tanks collapsing and things not working the way they are. Um, but I personally can't, at times filter the signal from the noise. So just help me understand what is the state of the war and what's coming next?
1: For sure. Um, I think watching this unfold over social media has made it even more difficult to truly understand what's happening on the ground, because one way or another, it either confirms your priors, the things that you are expecting to see or believe that are happening, Or if you don't have a predetermined opinion, you get overwhelmed with information, like you said, it's very hard to tell the signal from the noise. And it's useful to remember that there is intentional disinformation out there in order to influence public opinion in Russia, in order to influence public opinion in the West, and in order to shape public opinion all around the world uh, in areas that are either still kind of on the fence of um, where to go or are more increasingly tilting towards Russia in this competition or whatever conflict with the West, which this is not. We should kind of you know scale this down to understand that this is at the most basic level, one independent country inv- invading without provocation, without any sort of self-defense, um, uh, kind of immediate reason without any uh, encouragement or approval from the international community in another independent country.
0: And so, I'm sorry to interrupt here. I- I'm so glad you, you made that point because this is an argument I've been having with my friends, people I know and engage with who sort of are on the fence or a bit more towards the Russia side of things is that the Ukrainians have agency they are a sovereign country with a democracy, a flawed democracy, it might be, but they have the right to determine whether they want to be part of Europe as through the European Union or even NATO or Russia. And if they choose one or the other, it's not up to Putin to decide for them what their future will be.
1: Exactly. And I, this, it's it's a key point that, you know, Ukraine is an independent country and there were really no indication that they were going to join NATO and nor was NATO going to accept them. Uh, the EU conversation is a separate one. Uh, there is a higher likelihood of that now, because <laughs> once again, ironically. Um, but this is an absolutely unprovoked attack by one independent country against another independent country. Um, how is the war going? Terrible. I mean, the level of um, displacements that we're seeing there, it's been, what, a little over two weeks and more than two million refugees have been, have had to flee their homes and their countries. That is a massive amount of people. Ukraine is a country of 40 million people. It's a big country. Uh, perhaps you know, not in uh, Pakistan and India terms, but for Europe, this is a this is a big populated country. Um, it's bigger than the neighbors that are taking in. Uh, it's uh, you know, the refugees, uh, a lot of them. Um, so we're, we don't even really know the scale of internal displacement, but we also know that whenever conflicts like this happen, there's many more, there are many more people who become internally displaced inside the country than those that are able to flee and leave and cross the borders. Um, it's very difficult to estimate casualties, uh, but we are seeing, like you said, from a lot of the open source intelligence, very clear attacks on civilian infrastructure like hospitals and schools and roads and uh, and apartment blocks by, the, by Russian artillery and Russian air bombardment. Uh, we're seeing a real humanitarian catastrophe, especially unfolding in the South in the Southern city of Mariupol, which has been effectively under siege uh, with large parts of the city, not having alex- electricity, uh, heat, water, um, we're talking about winter in Eastern Europe. It's freezing. And it's in being without heat, uh, with people hiding in cellars and basements. It's, it's a terrible, terrible humanitarian situation. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about the military kind of progression and balance of power, I think we know from estimates that Russia has mobilized effectively all of the troops that it has Moved to the border uh, over the previous months, which is about two hundred thousand, um, which is a massive scale. With you know un- untold numbers of uh, heavy heavy equipment and support units and whatnot. Um, from a military perspective, the Russian military has not performed well. It's those of us that study the Russian military uh, spent the last couple of weeks. Baffled because it is fighting in a way that doesn't really capitalize on what we know are to be its strengths and where it has demonstrated to be its strengths in previous engagements. And it is making these blunders and very, very basic tactical mistakes that just leave you sitting there wondering what the heck are they doing? You're seeing all of this abandoned equipment. Uh, You're seeing absolute failure to, to, to provide for logistical support. When you have an operation this size in a country this size, especially when you have urban warfare, this military operations in cities, which is extremely difficult from a military operation standpoint, you have to come prepared. For and be equipped and sustained for a long fight. And all of the indicators are saying that they did not know what they were getting themselves into. They were expecting something completely different. It seems that they were expecting a very brief engagement where the Ukrainians were just going to accept them and, you know, kind of let them decide what is Ukraine's future. But as you see, and as I think the world is seeing, the Ukrainian resistance has been extremely powerful and inspiring and dogheaded. And these people feel like they're fighting for their survival, for the survival of their country, of their culture, of their history, of their independence, of their future and of democracy. And I think that's, In many ways, what has inspired so much interest in this conflict in ways that we haven't really seen uh, is this juxtaposition between an unprovoked, effectively criminal military attack on a country that just wants to have its own space.
0: And and I think what's been fascinating and in my view is that you're absolutely right about Ukrainian resistance, right? I think we're living through a modern day 300 almost where, you know, the the, the man who's leading the country, a comedian becomes the leader and everyone expects Russians in particular, or Putin in particular, that the Ukrainians will run away, including their leader, um, he stands up and they give the bully a bloody nose. And I've been thinking every time I you know, follow developments in, in the Ukraine about what's going on, I go back to Professor Schulz's line, right? That the enemy always gets a vote. And if the enemy gives you a bloody nose in war, um, then things will turn very quickly, right? And, and we're seeing that in, in this particular conflict. To me, what's also been surprising, looking at some of the open sources, you know, not just the fact that, Equipment has been abandoned, but oil leaking from Russian military trucks and tanks and disrepair. And so I wanted to get your view on what happened in this and what do you think is the reason why they have made these blunders and have been completely incompetent, for lack of a better word? Because if I'm thinking about, you know, putting myself in the chair of a Russian general or a military commander who Putin is like, you know, trust and says this is this is our legacy then one would anticipate that the equipment would be in tip top shape and everything would be ready to go and they would have a plan, but clearly they did not. So what happened here?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of us who are watching this space are asking because uh, the Russian military has been on a path like uh, implementing modernization plans and reforms Mm -hmm. since 2007 or so. And if we, those have been tracking like the military exercises, the acquisition plans, like the, all of these other modernization efforts have seen real progress and the, the quality of equipment, the quality of training, um, just you know appro- improvements in, in many real ways. Um, we've also seen Russian involvement in Syria that one way or another with horrific devastation, uh, did meet its goal of keeping Assad in power. We've seen, um, Russian backed, you know, Ukrainian separatists, like I mentioned in 2014, uh, and the, the the way that the Russian military acted there, the type of a sophisticated, like say electronic warfare equipment that it's used, the way that it deployed drones, uh, the way that it integrated a lot of these elements together really showed signs of uh, a modern, relatively effective military. So a lot of what we're seeing right now is baffling, like you said, and you're wondering what the hell what the hell's going on. So I think a few things, one is that, Whenever you're, unless you're in, you know, some basement in an intelligence operation um, tracking things that are not visible to other people on the outside who are just following open source information, what you're seeing is a steady diet of what people want you to see. So judging how things are going from military exercises, for example, is difficult because those are orchestrated and organized shows of force. No one's going to do a public military exercise and conclude from this, oh, we're terrible, uh, and everybody should see how bad we are. Like, that's, that's just not how, you know, militaries behave. So there is obviously an incentive to show force and show like high-end capabilities whenever the world is watching. Um, and that's, that's a lesson to be learned, right? About our assessments of uh, other, other militaries. The other thing is that, at least on the logistical side, I've read something that said, you know, when they, when they accumulated uh, and congregated their forces on the border, uh, sit, letting equipment just sit there Doesn't do anything good to it. And it threw off their schedule of maintenance. It threw off any sort of sustainment uh, efforts that they should have been implementing at that point. Uh, But I think the bigger issue is that they were just not prepared for this. They prepared for an easy breezy march through that was going to effectively deter any sort of real opposition and any sort of fighting. And in cases where that show of force wasn't effective and deterring, they weren't expecting that level of sophisticated resistance assisted by the West to this point. So not only were, you know, there's, there's massive levels of miscalculations here, but, It also kind of exposes some of the problems and what's the word I always forget? Some of the real problems that exist with militaries in authoritarian countries where there's a tendency to avoid disagreement. It's a culture of yes men. And it's a culture of like, it's a super hierarchical culture of agreeing with whoever your boss is and never saying, no, we're not ready. No, we're not prepared. No, we can't do this because that's not just your job. That's usually your head. And it's not it's not a very open to questions and debates and assessments type of culture. And Putin doesn't trust anyone and he doesn't trust his generals. And there are signs and indications that effectively, nobody from the upper military echelons to let alone the, you know, the rank and file knew that this was going to be the scale of it. So it was hard to prepare when you don't know what you're preparing for. And the goals of the war are not effectively articulated these poor Russian boys that are, you know, going in there to get captured and or get killed don't understand why they're there. A lot of them, you're increasingly seeing indications didn't even know that they were going to go, you know, fight an actual war and don't have any training going in. So it's it's, there are a lot of like technical reasons that they're failing. There are a lot of like logistical reasons, but some of it just goes back to the fact that this is an authoritarian army where there's no culture of uh, debate, disagreement, and challenging one another, and the civil-military relations between Putin and his generals are tense, let's say the least, especially now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's been it's been interesting. You know, you mentioned the articulation of the goals, and and again, go back to my own IR days. Like, Clausewitz, the War is a continuation of politics by other means. And what's the political goal here? I don't know. And I've been following this war pretty closely. I would argue, and what you want to occupy Ukraine, you want regime change. Like, what is it? We don't know. Um, so I, I agree with that that point that you made. One of the things that you've tweeted about, and you're an expert in this, and you know, studied this, including in Syria, is urban warfare, right? There are people still to this day on social media who argue that this is not going to be a long war. It's going to be over any day now that they're negotiating, blah, blah, blah. And you've been arguing in the tweets that at least I have seen that, you know, this is going to get really, really depressing and really, really evil uh, in, in in that sense of the word, because that's what urban warfare is. Um, and there's nothing, it's not just a Russian tactic, it's what happened in Aleppo. We saw this happen in Fallujah, in Mosul, um, in any of the major conflicts we've seen in the Middle East in the last few decades, this is what it descends into. And then there's block-by-block block fighting that is devastating, to say the least. Where do you see this going in, 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 in this particular conflict? And and what's what should we be prepared for in terms of the sights, sounds, and the tragedy that will is still to be unfolded in this case.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, that there is kind of a divergence of perspective of where it's going to go. One of the things you hear a lot, so I, I, I bring up this, this point a lot when I talk about this. The last major urban battle was the battle to liberate Mosul from ISIS um, after Mosul fell to ISIS. And that was a coalition of Iraqi forces supported by the US-led coalition that provided intelligence and aerial aerial support. And it was about 100,000 troops one way or another, confronting what must have been no more than 20,000. And that's a very high estimate of ISIS fighters. In a city that is much smaller than Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine. And that battle took nine months. So we are on week three, and we have multiple cities in a multi-front war. Uh, there are, uh, but, but the pushback that I get is Ukraine is not Iraq. Ukraine is not Syria. Ukraine is not, you know, the Middle East, and uh, uh, Ukraine is not Chechnya, which was uh, the the republic that Russia that Russia had wars with in uh, ninety five and two thousand. Um, so the idea is that you know because the world is watching so closely, and this is a conventional war, and this is in Europe. Uh, there's all of these and there's massive support coming in from the West and there's all of these factors that make it less likely, presumably, that this is going to become protracted. That might be, you know, there might be like, in the fact that we're seeing these massive sanctions that are going to hit Russia really, really hard, um, the fact that we're also not really seeing any indication that he's mobilizing other parts of the military—that right now the the war is kind of restricted to those two hundred thousand troops that he's deployed. Um, so perhaps, perhaps they have fought, and in the next month, you know, they bring it to the negotiation table, which is a farce to call it a negotiation table because. This is not going to be some sort of a happy peace negotiation that leads to a resolution of a conflict, it is at best going to be a ceasefire that's going to solidify wherever the war has stopped at that point. Um, But maybe this maybe this ends soon because of all of these factors and pressures. I am a pessimist by nature and by schooling. and whenever there, are, there is urban warfare involved, it becomes a protracted fight. It becomes a battle of attrition. And the other thing that I think is really important to understand is in urban warfare, generally by military doctrine, the defender has the advantage. And that's why it was so difficult to get ISIS out of Mosul, out of Raqqa, because they use the city, the terrain of the city to their advantage. So in general, we know that this should should be true. Moreover, the Ukrainians are highly motivated. They're fighting for their lives. They have high morale, they have high motivation. They're also very well supplied. You know, ISIS eventually was gonna run out of what it, I'm not comparing by any means, I'm just just talking about defenders. Um, The Ukrainians are receiving high-end military equipment from the West and a lot of military support as well as humanitarian assistance. So there is kind of a hope, I guess, and some very smart people who know urban warfare who are saying that, because of all of these factors, Ukrainians are going to be able to resist and hold the cities, especially Kiev, uh, because defense has the advantage, they're well supplied, they have high morale, Russia is uh, you know, fighting terribly, it doesn't have the people, doesn't have the logistical support that it needs to take the cities. Uh, but that doesn't mean the war is going to end fast. That actually means it's going to go on for longer. Because if they are able to resist for longer because they are highly motivated. They have the advantage of urban terrain and they're receiving military support. Who's gonna surrender? Even if Russia is, even if the Russian forces are not able to implement a full siege around Kiev, which they're likely not going to be able to. They still have sufficient artillery art, artillery fire and aerial support, which they haven't been using as much, but they haven't, to to hurt and devastate a lot of these cities before they even begin the block by block, which they're not going to do while there is such a highly motivated, well-supplied force defending that city. So the factors that are unique to Ukraine in fact, which is this super motivated, highly supported resistance, on defense in a city might make it last longer, in addition to the fact that urban warfare itself is a long fight. So I I don't know. I think that this, this gets worse before it gets better. And in that regard, I think you asked, like, what should we do or what should we expect? Um, People have lives and priorities and, you know, the information environment really is not built to keep our attention on one single issue. So I think that that's also gonna get worse. We're all watching it now, but again, it's only been three weeks. Um, As it gets to several months, if it does, I think it's important to keep watching and keep trying to understand what's happening and keep kind of questioning your sources, questioning narratives, um, tracking some of the, questioning yourself and what you tend to agree with. I I try to do that to myself a lot as well. Um, And keep paying attention because this this is not only uh, Russia-Ukraine problem or only a European problem. Like Ukraine and Russia combined provide, you know, supply uh, wheat and grain and corn to Iran, Bangladesh, Egypt, a bunch of other low income countries in the global South around the world. And the implications of that, of prices going up, we know from the Arab Spring what that type of unrest and consequences can have from these sort of like economic reverberations. So it feels, I I assume, like a European or Western problem right now, but the implications that are going to be felt are going to be global.
0: Yeah, I think we're already seeing that, um, as you mentioned, with wheat prices. Um, Pakistan is expected to need wheat imports this year, um, and India has a surplus, so India is gearing up to export. Uh, obviously, India Pakistan don't trade much, so you can't just get it across the border. But wheat prices being high is a terrible, terrible situation. Plus, on top of it, you have a crisis in Afghanistan which means that there's always an incentive to smuggle cheaper wheat from Pakistani markets into Afghan markets because there's a higher premium that is demanded there in terms of price. And so there's that, there's fertilizer prices, which then has an impact the next harvest season in terms of what farmers can plant and the yields they get, et cetera. So it is a huge risk. And just the spike in all prices alone um, in Pakistan, Prime Minister Khan is facing a vote of no confidence in parliament. And instead of raising oil petroleum prices, which he should have done because the price has gone up in the international market, he cut it by 10 rupees a liter, primarily because he wants to keep inflation low because otherwise the people will join the protest and that's game over for him especially, right? So he's making political choices, which make logical sense. They're populist in nature to sustain his government but at the end of the day, if oil prices remain above 90, 80, $90 a barrel, which they have been for the last few weeks, or they go even higher, they've come down recently, then it's trouble, right? Because at some point in time, the government will have to say, we're out of money, sorry, we have to raise prices because we need money from the IMF or the bond market or whatever, and they won't give it to us if we don't do these things, right? I think it's a, that that's the reason why I wanted to have you on for this conversation is because It is extremely important for Pakistanis and Indians and South Asians and people from the global South to see what's going on. Um, Not only because it is a war in the heart of Europe and it's a devastating, yet another devastating conflict where it has real impact um, on the economies of this part of the world. Towards the end, I wanted to get a sense from you on what particular off ramps are there, right? I agree with you that this is going to be a long war. My personal view is that the only way um, this war comes to a quick end is if the economic pain in Russia is so intense um, and so intensely felt that there's a palace coup against Putin and he's kicked out and that's when the generals decide, hey, we're withdrawing because this is not worth the price. Um, one would love your quick take on my own opinion on this, but two, what are the off ramps in the case that this goes on and and you know what would you be looking for in terms of saying, you know what, perhaps there might be light at the end of the tunnel here
1: yeah now the palace coup is a is a popular one, and I think you know it, it's got it's got some merit um the sanctions are being enforced as a punishment for this war, but they're also you know and we clearly hear this they're being enforced against putin uh to one way or another to indicate to the russian public and to the oligarchs and to any other sort of like decision makers uh, around Putin that this that his presence is will no longer be tolerated by anyone in the West um, I don't know what's your read of this situation but in my time of studying this space I have not really seen people who are in the midst of uh, their own society collapsing, suddenly deciding to question the nature of their reality. Like, it's funny. I
0: fully agree, sorry to interrupt, I fully agree because the, the sanctions argument, I mean, Professor Dresner has been arguing against their effectiveness for years. And I agree with him because I'm like, look, if sanctions had to work, Saddam would have laid down his arms before 2003, the North Koreans would have laid down their arms, the Iranians would have rebelled against Khomeini and the Revolutionary Guard, right? It hasn't happened.
1: Exactly, exactly. So there's this kind of, you know, idea that a country brought to its knees decides to remove its leader because he is at fault. But a country that, has been, and the people who have been fed propaganda for generations, for decades, and under Putin for decades, are not, their first inclination is going to be that this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is like, this confirms everything he has told us about the West that they're out to humiliate Russia, they're out to cripple Russia, they're out to destroy Russia, and here we are. If anything, he is being proven right in that regard. So the notion that that is what's going to be the mobilizing factor against him, I I don't, I mean, I, I, I could be very wrong about everything I say, uh, but this too. But it, it is interesting that we use economic problems and inequality and the feeling of exclusion by the economy, you know, in the US we have all of those, like we've been forgotten by the economy uh, as an explanation for rising populism. But somehow in the countries that become the targets of sanctions, we expect economic collapse and exclusion by the economy to mobilize people towards their best hopes and dreams and the new leadership and in democracy.
0: And I think you tweeted about this as well in terms of don't underestimate Russians' ability to bear pain, so to speak, right? Yeah. And I agree in the sense that I remember reading this book when I was at Fletcher. It wasn't part of the reading material, but I was just fascinated by it in the library. It was Russia against Napoleon. A people that set their own capital in Moscow to fire on fire as they withdrew and decided that they would risk starving to death, but make sure that Napoleon's army definitely starves to death as they retreated into the you know cold badlands of Russia. I don't think they're going to give up that easily. Plus it's it's one of those things that, you know, you look at Soviet history, there were shortages. There was a lot of pain. But the Soviet Union did not collapse because the people rose up against those economic pains. It just collapsed because it just was untenable uh, once Gorbachev was in power and he recognized that. So, yeah, it wasn't, you know, some sort of mass mobilization that happens. But I would, again, push back against even my own view is that the pain that is being felt through the sanctions is being felt, you know, also by oligarchs and rich elite Russians who formed the core power center of Russian politics around Putin. Um, and perhaps they might decide that enough is enough.
1: Perhaps, and but it's, and, and I agree, you know, and one of my friends uh, who is a, a Russian political economist uh, made, and this kind of gives you a, the difference of perspective of people who study political economy and people who study the military. Uh, like he said that a lot of it is about, you know, modern Russia is different from the Soviet Union, which is fair enough. And uh, it's about the rate of change. So now the collapse of the economy is gonna be very stark, as opposed to the continuation of just living in crap, which is the, the previous experience. So maybe there's something to that, perhaps. But the idea that, just because something is bad, it's going to change is just, it's, it's one of those human, very human kind of like fallacies that you see in every day about, in all of our lives, I think. It's like, if, if your friend is going out with somebody and she's always complaining about how, you know, they don't get along and we're always fighting and you always think, oh, she's gonna break up with them tomorrow. And then they stay together for five years. Like and you see that in the con in economic issues, you see this in political in in real in people who get reelected. When you think, how could this possibly happen? Uh, there is more continuity than change, because even the devil you know is better than the one that you can't you can't even imagine. And the thing about the oligarchs, I think, is worth to remember is that. Since Putin has come to power, a lot of them have fallen out of windows and you know, had other accidents in very creative, murderous ways. So the ones that are around him now have been left there by him by design. So it's going to take a combination of factors for them to attempt to remove him. But I don't even, I'm not 100% confident that's even a path. You asked about off-ramps. I think the only real off-ramp is a very bleak one. And in, in that is they reach some sort of a mutually painful point in the war. And they just take a ceasefire that sets not in stone, but freezes kind the of con- the military conditions on the ground.
0: It's almost like a East Germany, West Germany type of a situation then, right? Because whoever wants to cross over from that border when they can will come to the Western part of Ukraine and the rest will just get stuck on the other side.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's terrible, but it's not easy to cross and a lot and there will be people who are who don't try uh and but one way or another that's still preferable than continued bloodshed and continued destruction so uh, would,
0: it, yeah. it, it already is one of those you know and I think it's probably the first war that has been you know watched live I had a friend of mine say that she was like you know it's one of those wars where you go to bed with the war even though you're not fighting it because you have tick tock or twitter or facebook and the videos are there right and like you're scrolling doom scrolling at night and you fall asleep watching these ghastly visuals of war And hasn't happened before
1: um not to this extent I think, I think you know we've seen the footage from iraq and syria and yemen but not but or gaza but we haven't seen it like this bombardment of information and live feeds across all of these platforms, it's unprecedented for sure.
0: Yeah, and I think there will be definitely a lot of PhDs that come out of uh, you know studying the information warfare that has happened and, and what the implications are. But that's a topic mm-hmm. for another another day. I know we're way out of time, over time. Um, so A, thank you so much for taking out the time. I know it's a different audience and a different type of a conversation on this issue, but I'm really thankful that you took out the time and joined me and and our audience. Um, Before I let you go, um, I always ask this of my guests, like what are two or three books that you would recommend to listeners? It can be on any topic, it could be related to this conflict or its history, um, but we just love your recommendations.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm very bad with uh, names on the spot. Can I get back to you?
0: Yeah, that's sure, absolutely. That's fine. I'll, I'll put it out on Twitter in any case. So
1: yeah, yeah, um, no, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet at you. It's, um, it's one of those things that I'm terrible at on the spot because I think I have a lot of them in the back, of but they're never immediately there in the back of my mind.
0: But, you're you're not the first guest, yeah. nor will you be the last was, one to be yeah. caught off guard. I, I've caught a lot of people off guard, so i, yeah, I yeah, that's
1: a good question. I'm glad you didn't ask that first. That would have up a yeah. conversation. Too mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'll, I'll I'll come back to you, especially on this war. Um, I I will give you the name of a Russian journalist and an author who was, uh, you know, one of Putin's victims because of her reporting uh, on the war, and she has had. A, a very uh, difficult but important book on the war in Chechnya. Her name is Anna Politskaya, Uh and uh, she, she you know in the 90s and in the early 2000s have had real access into um, both Putin's um, let's say mind, but decision making as well as the implications of those decisions. So I, I would suggest her as an author to track.
0: Thank you for that. And again, for those of you who haven't even roughly read the history of that Chechen war, um, it's an important sort of horrific tale of violence and what happened there. And I think I remember growing up, um, which again, to do it, it's a good way to end this conversation, which because I said that there is this latent anti-Westernism, anti-Americanism. Um, I grew up in Pakistan listening to sermons where one of the prayers at the end of the Friday sermon was for Kashmir, Palestine, Bosnia, and Chechnya, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what the Russians were up to in Chechnya. And there were Islamic militants who had gone um, to fight and, 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 and resist against this, this war. Um, and so there is this memory in South Asia, particularly in Pakistan, around what happened there. And I think people ought to read a bit more because I think the younger generation has forgotten um, that brutal and bloody conflict as well. But Dr. Rita, thank you so much for taking out the time and joining us. Um, I hope you and I are proven wrong in the sense that this is a quick and dirty war, but a quick end to this war happens um, in the next few days and, or weeks. Um, and I personally think that this is going to get a whole lot worse, but I hope that I'm wrong. Um, but thank you so much for taking out the time.
1: Thank you for speaking to me. Have a great day.
0: You too.